Hello and welcome to Standpoints, the podcast where we explore the Black experience. This is our space for living and loving Blackness. My name is Trisha Cadet. And I'm Andrea Baldwin. And on this episode, we are going to talk to Dr. Kwame Harrison and Jerlyn Morell about making Black feminist interventions in the academy, activist, and entrepreneurial spaces. But before we go into our conversation with today's guests, I think we should introduce ourselves and the foundation of this project. Like I said before, my name is Trisha Cadet, and I am a third-year graduate student here at Virginia Tech in the Arts Leadership Program. And my main focus is on community engagement within the realm of care, and it basically asks the questions, how can organizations and institutions care for their communities? And my introduction to care came from my work, my Black feminist work with Dr. Baldwin. And so, as Trisha said, I do black feminist work. I identify as a black feminist. And by that, I mean everything I do in my personal and political life stems, stems from my identity and the identities and lived experience of black women generally. Um, this focus is the premise of the idea for this Standpoints podcast, which came from a book project we started as part of my black feminist graduate seminar in 2019 the point of which was to give students and other partners uh, on campus the opportunity to have their work published. With that said, our guests today were contributors to the project, Dr. Harrison as an editor and Jerlyn as a student contributor turned entrepreneur. We want to start first with Dr. Harrison, who was involved in the project from its inception. By way of introduction, Dr. Harrison is an anthropologist, a qualitative researcher who also does hip-hop studies. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yes, I'm so glad that you could join us because uh, I remember when we first, when I first thought started thinking about the book, it was in Robert Broder, who works for Virginia Tech Publishing, a class that he was teaching, and you were also in the class with me. And he mentioned uh, that other people at Virginia Tech had published with Virginia Tech Publishing. I'd never heard about it before. And the idea came to me and I said, Kwame, do you think that's something that I could do? Um, and you were like, sure. And so you were there from the inception when I had the idea about this particular project. Uh, and I never really, we never really talked about what you thought, like you, if you thought that I was crazy or um, you thought it was a good idea, but you, you, you joined me um, when I invited you to be an editor for the volume. So, yeah, what did you think? Well, I, I think I was, I think I said a little more than sure, but I don't know. My memory could be mistaken, but I just thought that the idea of publishing something with your graduate students on black feminisms was so in line with what I knew and understood about you as a teacher and a scholar and a mentor. So I was really it made sense it totally but also selfishly i knew that i kind of had a side project where i wanted to do it with my students and i know that you have follow through on things you do so i was like well she's going to do it and when she's going to do it if dr baldwin does it that's going to make me do it for my students as well but yeah it just totally made sense right right and you know just fast forwarding through introducing it to the class and I'll talk to Jerlyn and Trisha about what they thought about it as well once I introduced it to them to the class. Um, but then the process, the process, I remember telling you as you we were going through the process that I'm never going to do this again, or at least I'm not going to do this anytime soon. Um, so just some thoughts on your, your experience through the process um, for doing standpoints as well. Yeah, well, you know, I was, I was honored to be asked um, I still don't think I deserve as much credit as I get for having my name on it. But but I also know that when you're really in the throes of doing the work, sometimes you just have those days where you're like, what have I got myself into? And boy, this is so much work. But then when you see the product, when you see what comes of it and what 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 we have, but I would really put, say you first, what, what you've been able to do with this in terms of just... Um, being able to turn it into a number of events and a, and a promotion and really just a celebration of emerging scholars 
research and scholarship around black feminisms and promoting that at a university where it's really, really um, has been missing and it's something that's been, that's been needed. It's just, it's been a wonderful experience for me, but part of that's because I think you did more of the work than I did, but also I was working too. Yes, and, you were. And, and when you work through things like this, sometimes you have those tough moments, but to see this beautiful book that that came out of all of it. It's just, I mean, I, I, I beam when I, when I look at the cover and when I see our names, you know, and just, and just, I think it's been amazing what we, what we've been able to do, but I, I, I give credit first and foremost to you. I think, I think you should keep saying we, I'm not sure if you know this, but I want to say, I can't speak for everybody, but majority of the folks on the project, a lot of us were very, very apprehensive, mainly because you were an editor. <laughs> and it was, it was just stressful trying to figure out how to, to reach Dr. Harrison's standards. So don't, don't give yourself that credit. You were just as important because a lot of us were stressed out yeah. well, about meeting your standards. Well, thank, thank you so much. And, and you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll change, turn that around just a little bit to say that Sometimes when you're in a course with somebody, and I know that Dr. Baldwin is your is is a professor at, but there's still her. I hope I get this right. Pedagogy of care mm -hmm. and just the showing love. There's this. I mean, I think that it's important to um. And I think I I believe in that as well. I think that I think that comfortable and and excited students do the best work and not necessarily scared students. But I do think that sometimes bringing in some people from outside and saying, okay, you don't just have to per have to impress me, the person that we're in class together every day and have this kind mm -hmm. of level of intimacy around what we do in class and around the topic, but we also have these outside people coming in. I think that that can sometimes be a good thing to um, put a little bit of pressure on people to make sure they're putting their best foot forward. So, yeah. I, I think it was good because I think, and this is just from you know, my perspective, maybe Geraldine has a different one to, to add in or someone else, but I could say that um, on one end, to working on the project, having, you know, having someone like Dr. Baldwin who puts so much love and care into the project, it, you, also, you almost assume that responsibility to reciprocate that. So you have to work hard. If somebody is putting that much effort into your success and your progress, you have to in turn work as hard to meet their expectations. And then there's, you know, the tough love person, which is Dr. Harrison, where you just, you know, you don't, you, I don't want to mess up because I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to look bad. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah. And, and, and Dr. Reichelman's pretty, um, pretty, yes. pretty, nose to the grindstone too. So, so yeah, I think we, I think it was a good team of editors, but I, I think, I think it was a great collective effort that was put together. And I think it starts with Dr. Baldwin and the vision and the vision to, to bring us on as co-editors, but also the vision to think that it's this course. And I know that there was a lot of excitement about the course. So really to take something that already, it seems students were, were, excited to be a part of and it's really something new here at Virginia Tech but then to take that and to not just make it a course but to make it something where where you're building towards this this project that that's just that's just brilliant as they say in the UK brilliant <laughs> um and I wanted to just add into what you said Dr. Harrison about the pedagogy of care and the vision I wanted to, you know, put Dr. Baldwin on the spot since we are talking about this project and, mm -hmm. you know, the foundation of all the projects we've been doing. What was your vision for this project and for your students? I mean, I know you, you know, you wanted to do the book project, you wanted to get students um, published, but I just wanted to know that the deeper meaning behind it for you. Yeah, uh, I wasn't expecting a question, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're up. Um, so the one thing that I always go back to when I think about when did I decide to adopt the type of pedagogy that I did, um, and I think about my education in the Caribbean. 
So all of my education from primary all the way up to tertiary is in the Caribbean. And I have always been educated and I felt my education never felt like it was separate from being in community and learning in a way that was fresh and loved. It all felt like it came together. And I think it was because all of my education was with black women. Um, my mentors were all black women. And I would say, for instance, uh, Professor Union Barato, who was one of my mentors for my PhD program, she would take us everywhere with her. Like I've been so many places around the world. I've been to Sweden. I've been to Argentina. I've been to ev anywhere that she went, she would take us. And she would always include us, not just as her students who are learning, but as people who had something to say and that our voices should be heard. Um, and I think for me, that is what made me the person that I am today and the type of scholar that I am. And I try to emulate that because I know how I felt. I felt like, yeah, you know, if there if there's a question that needs to be asked, if I don't ask it, then who else is going to ask it? And I needed to have, I she gave me, and other women as well, gave me permission to do that, permission to go outside this, what I call this hierarchical kind of boundary-making space that is very, very arbitrary and artificial, um, where because you are a student, you somehow cannot be a knowledge producer because you're learning from people who are supposed to be teaching you. And, and I, don't, I don't believe in that. Um, and so that is where the vision comes from, but it's less of a vision and more of an like a praxis that I have believed in from being a student and learning from people like that. Um, if, if I could jump in, I, I also think that I, I'm just so happy to see that happening here because that's something that I, as, as the old man around here, and I've been here for a while now, <laughs> it's just been, I think, um, seeing that and having that modeled, even within Virginia Tech Publishing, where it is about recognizing student, student scholarship, um, I think that if you add on the, the opening reception and if you add on the, right. the event we did with Aspect and, and this, I mean, other places where this has been documented. And, and I mean, I think even just seeing the text and when people just really hold the text and really get into it and they can feel they can feel the genuineness behind it. That's something that I think you've you've modeled a a different way of engaging with students as knowledge producers. That's something that a lot of people at this university and, and in academia in general, but I'll say at this university can learn from. And it's great that that it's been documented in this way. So even if you weren't around at that time, but you're coming to the school, you can engage these things and see how it's done. Right. Um, I think it, this would be a great time to bring Jerlyn into the conversation um, to talk about also from, and Trisha already started talking about the student perspective, but to talk about, you know, when Dr. Harrison and I had talked about this and discussed it and we, I decided this was something I was going to do with the class, but what was it like when this person gets up in front of the class and says, oh, so we're going to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> What um, what were you feeling? What were you thinking? Yeah, Jerlyn, sorry. Um, I thought it was really dope. Um, I was like, okay, because we've never done this before. I'm in my, I was ending my first year in the master's program. And I was like, I don't have any publications. I don't even know where to begin. And the fact that you you laid out the project in a way that was similar to how we would do it for anywhere else where it wasn't a class project. Um, so having to go through the call, having to submit an abstract, um, and actually going through that via email. Um, I don't know. I think that that, that process was very important, especially because I don't even, I think Anash was probably the only one in the classroom. Uh, well, two, because I forget the other student's name. But there were like only two students in the class who had publications. So they've been through the process, whereas we haven't. And... I don't even know if there's like any workshops that that are that thorough um, to be able to show you um, from 
beginning to end. And then to actually, um, instead of just getting a grade for the class, we actually came out with a publication and like a whole entire book um, with the other students who, um, from the class. So it was really, it was really good. Like you could have probably went about it 10 million different ways, but the way that you actually did it, I think was most beneficial for us. Um, so now I have like a little bit less anxiety mm-hmm. <laughs> submitting aspects to, um, a call for papers. Um, cause I'm currently in, well, I've, I'm currently um, working on my second publication, um, waiting on edits uh, for that one. But I'm really glad that I was able to have that experience. Um, So I was excited when you told us that. I wasn't, like, anxious um, that day in class when you told us this is what we're going to be doing. I was excited. The anxiety didn't kick in until I had to do the research. (laughs) So, but, yes, I was very excited about it. (laughs) Yeah. Trisha, I know your your experience is a little different. in terms of what you were going to to contribute, because at the end you contributed a very beautiful poem, and um, I'll let you tell your story about also the cover of the book. <laughs> Do people even want to hear that? Of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I chickened out. That's the summary. I chickened out. No, um, but what I would say is, this um, course was my introduction to, to gender studies and black feminisms. It's not, though anybody would tell you I am a natural-born rebel, radical, agitator, that's me, but actually, you know, taking that deep dive into understanding the scholarship of black feminisms and the process and the development and the history, this was my introduction and for me to make um, such a strong statement because the essays are statements, they're voices, and I didn't feel like I was ready to make that statement. For me, this was, this was um, you know, supposed to be complementary because my field is arts. The arts is my field, I'm an artist. Um, I've been an arts educator for years and I looked at, this and getting myself involved in women's and gender studies as complementary to the work that I intend to do because I've always told people that my responsibility is to my community and my community are my people. And who are my people? I'm black. My people are black. My people are West Indian. You know, um, my people are African. These are my people. And I love to surround myself with, you know, different aspects of education so I could fully understand the human experience. Only through understanding the human experience can you really advocate and work for community. So I didn't feel I was in that place to make such a strong black feminist statement. And Dr. Baldwin can attest to that. I struggle with labeling myself as anything. (laughs) So labeling myself as a feminist or anything of of that sort is, is not something that I typically do. And I really wanted to take my time to really understand what it is, what my role in it is, and what I needed to do before I took that step. So I opted out. You Um, didn't opt out. I did. I did write the essay, but I did not feel like I was ready to put a final stamp on it and have those words published as yet. Because one other thing that has to be taken into account is your responsibility to a to community and i didn't want to put anything out there that would do harm or injustice to my community because like i said my community is black but it's also west indian and i was speaking from that point and then i also have to remember the audience who's going to read this and majority of the people who would have been reading this would be students at virginia tech who may not have been exposed to the global blackness That's what I'm going to call it. And I did not want to do any injustice to the community by putting something out there that may be misconstrued or misunderstood. And for me to be comfortable with it, I wanted to understand my role and what my voice really was. So I chose not to have that part published. (laughs) But I did um, contribute my... um, creative essay it's i i don't even know is there a word for what i wrote (laughs) 
creative essay. My creative essay, I'll say <laughs> that. Um, to the book, um, which was in line with the cover art, which I was amazingly blessed to have my painting on the cover of a book. You know, I typically don't even have my paintings hung up in public. You know, my um, my visual art is something personal for me. I, I paint. It's a personal experience. I do it for me. And usually what happens is it gets stolen. My friends come, they take it, it disappears. I never see it again. And that's what, that's what it has always been. It's always a personal expression and never intended for public consumption. So the whole experience and just having that that physical thing that tangible you know thing I could touch it I could see it other people are going to see it 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 was a very surreal experience for me but it was also a very beautiful experience though I did I opted out of having my main essay published I can say without a doubt I appreciated going through the experience the up the down the high the low the stress, the frustration, I'm sure Geraldine can attest to reading too many books and not knowing what, <laughs> what makes sense anymore. <laughs> it was yes, a trying experience, but it was a beautiful one. It was. And to comment on what you said earlier about Dr. Harrison, now that caused me anxiety because I was like, I was told that he was the one um, reviewing or editing my paper. And I'm like, oh my goodness. He's going to think this is terrible, and it, it was just, <laughs> it was bad, um, but we got through it. It it actually warms my heart to hear that I have this reputation, but but, but just um, but just kind of but just pivoting because I but just pivoting a little to what Trisha was saying. I think that um, I mean I think your contributions really round out the volume. Yes, and and and, and as an interdis as someone who considers himself an interdisciplinary scholar, and who has now kind of achieved the promotional levels in my career where I no longer feel like I have to kind of play the game and do it the way that it's supposed to be played, even though I have an essay due, that, that a chapter due, that it will be written the way it's supposed to be written and everything. But as having said that, um, creative essays are, I mean, there, there is a real space for this in, in all scholarship, but particularly in scholarship that represents marginalized voices and that it's meant to be accessible to mm -hmm. a broad audience and to speak to what we personally feel. So I think the book, I, th I you keep talking about opting out and, and I understand <laughs> your reasons, but I, I think the book is that much richer for having those contributions as opposed to another critical essay, but without those contributions. I think it rounds it out to have the creativeness in it and, and your work is beautiful. So Thank you. And Yours I, too, Jerlyn. <laughs> and I never, like, I enjoyed reading your draft. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, I'm you. sure you did, but you still scared us. But what you said, I think um, this sets a good foundation for the argument that there needs to be a greater culture of care in the academy, not just pedagogically, but overall in its entirety because... As a student, and I'm sure many other, you know, graduate students, former graduate students can attest to this, it's, you know, it can be very disappointing and disheartening going through the academy and being told what you're supposed to be. It's, it almost feels like a place where you can't be yourself. And like you said, you know, there's space for diverse voices in the academy. There should be space. But until I met Dr. Baldwin or you, I didn't feel that way. You know, going through, I appreciate, appreciated going through that class because that was the one time in my graduate career that I felt like my voice made sense. Because prior to that, I was told that my, you know, my voice is too conversational. That, you know, maybe if I was writing for Cosmo, it would be accepted, but it's not good for the academy. Creative writing is not for the academy. So that's what I was told which is, you know, which builds more anxiety and apprehension as a student going into a, a project like this where you're supposed to be published. Like, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to sound like? You know, and then you read an Audre Lorde and she sounds like whatever the hell she wants to sound like and yeah. she doesn't care and that's what you want. And then you have people telling you, oh, but you're not her. But you, you have to play this game first. And how do you play that game if you're not built for that type of game? 
completely. I, 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 and I think I would hope that, I mean, as a student, you're not going to win every battle because it is, there is power and professors are in charge of their classes and, and all this. But I would hope that we're cultivating a generation to push back a little bit. And I think we're getting to a good place in terms of reading lists. I think that sometimes you can, we're getting to a place where you can have a course and someone might be like, hey, how, how come there are no black women on this reading list? Mm-hmm. How come there are no women of color? How, how come, how, and, and I think we're at a place where, still not everywhere, but oftentimes students can raise those objections and they can actually enrich a course. They, mm-hmm. can, they can take an old white male professor who's been doing the same thing year after year and not questioning it to suddenly realize, wow, I, can, I, I have to change and that can be better. I think... So I think we've re- gained some ground in terms of that, but in terms of, of, of how we represent our scholarship and the way that we write, I think that there's still, there's still work to be done there, and, but I hope that we're encouraging people to just not accept it has to be done this way, to at least push. And some of those battles, you, you, <laughs> the teacher will be like, no, no, no you got to do it this way. But other places... I mean, the idea of writing using the first-person voice. I mean, there are classes where that's not accepted. I mean, I have students all the time ask me about that in my qualitative research class. Like, can I use the first person? I'm like, I expect you to. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, so I think that it's a good thing because you, you are the, the future thought leaders of our society. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so Trisha told us a little bit about her contribution. I wanted to hear some more from Jerlyn about her contribution. And and then I have some follow-up questions about that because Jerlyn was able to model um, her, make some interventions entrepreneurially, if that's a word, um, that seemed to me as though it flowed from from this particular pedagogical intervention. So Jerlyn, can tell us a little bit about your chapter and how your scholarly intervention also helped you to kind of think through what you want to do um, with your business. Okay. Um, I cannot remember the title off of my head. I just know that it's like called Our Pussy, Our Collaborative, Afro-Caribbean Women, Sexual um, Oppression, Liberation, and Resistance. But those last three words are probably in a different order. Um, <laughs> oh, um, I talked about Afro-Caribbean women um, during colonial times in the West Indies, um, more so specifically in the Anglophone Caribbean, um, because I didn't do that on purpose, but most of the history and documentations and everything like that um, tend to be tend to include uh, the Anglophone Caribbean um, more than French. West Indies, Dutch West Indies, and the Hispanophone Caribbean. Um, although I did talk about the Hispanophone Caribbean because sex work in the Dominican Republic um, is 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 uh, prevalent. So um, I wanted to talk about, or I did talk about, or like just did a historical analysis, a brief one um, on how Afro-Caribbean women, um, the different types of oppressions that they faced. Um, during colonial times, but specifically when it came to their bodies. And then also wanted to make a point that they weren't just passive actors in their lives, that things were just happening to them, um, but that they were actually resisting, um, fighting, and they weren't just letting letting these things happen to them. Um, and then I, want, I talked about how contemporary, um, what contemporary resistance looks like and how they're fighting back against um, the oppression on their bodies as far as what they can wear, what they can't wear, what they can do, what they can't do, what they shouldn't do, what they should do. Um, and specifically that led me to sex work uh, because the island that I'm from is St. Martin, the Dutch West Indies, not the French. Um, and there are still um, brothels there, and but no one really talks about it. And the women who are there, they you don't really see them unless you go to the brothels. Um, and they usually live with some guy who who retrieved them from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also talked about like the nuance, the nuance, the, the nuances within um, sex work as far as it being a legitimate form of uh, work um, that does not receive benefits. 
um, as far as protection, health insurance, um, access um, to medicine. And so um, one of the things um, that I felt was important um, to discuss is that women choose, and I say choose lightly, um, women choose to do sex work for various reasons. Um, and one could simply be because they want to do it, period. They enjoy doing it. They like to do it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But then you have women who choose, and I say that lightly again, um, choose to do sex work, um, but it's because it's, it's various, various reasons um, that have led up to them choosing this job, and it can range from trying to provide for their children because they, instead of being um, a maid or having another job, um, in sex work, they make more money. And so if they want to provide a better life for their children, for example, they are able to do that through sex work. Um, and then also uh, falling into sex work or choosing sex work because they um, aren't, they don't have uh, protection or they don't have access to health insurance on their own um, because specifically uh, the island that I'm from, um, they're, there has been, I'm not sure if it's still there today, but there was a woman who would find women um, to work at the brothel, but they, she, they, they had a schedule where they, and they lived there. They would get um, tested on a regular basis. Um, so they didn't, so they didn't have to worry about um, engaging in sex work and then not having, not having access to um, a clinic or a doctor. Um, and so with writing this chapter, um, it also popped into um, some people uh, back home who frequent the brothels, um, just to get like their their perceptions of the women. Um, and what I find it ironic because some of the men had negative feelings towards these women who are doing sex work, yet you are the one paying them uh, and receiving their services, um, which I definitely there's a disconnect there. Um, and a lot of these men were married men too. So that's like probably a whole nother, that's a whole dissertation uh, <laughs> on its own. Um, but I digress. So that really just got me to thinking about um, sex work, like here, like, like here in the States um, and how prostitution is banned um, and how these women are looked down on because, because they're um, sex workers, period, regardless of like how they even came into it. Because um, again, there are a number of reasons, um, and so I. So, so the title, um, the, the first half of the title is "Our Pussy Our Prerogative," um, and I was like, originally, I wanted to uh, name it "My Pussy My Prerogative," but I wasn't. I wasn't talking about myself, um, and so I just felt like it, it. The changing my to our fit the. Um, the title and what I was talking about better, the chapter better. And so from the chapter, it influenced me to start uh, my business. Um, I don't really know how to categorize it. It's an online business um, that sells apparel, um, accessories, a plethora of things, um, like miscellaneous items also. But stemming from the chapter and influencing the business, I wanted to find a way to be able to help empower women, um, cisgender and trans women. And so I wanted to be able to provide clothing and accessories that were bold, that were unapologetic and uncensored. Um, Cause I think that when we talk about when, when there's, you know, uh, different words that are vulgar um, and consider profan profanity, uh, for pussy, as an example, um, it's it's used as a term to um, specifically to like men, as if you know, like they're weak um, or coming at their sexuality if they're not masculine, um, and kind of just like taking this word back. And also, I didn't. Um, my partner was like, um, "Don't you think that that's a bit a bit strong?" <laughs> and I was like. Uh, yes, that is the point. Um, I didn't, I didn't want it. I could have said, you know, um, I don't know. I can't think of any other alliteration right now, but you know, like my body, my choice, that's not alliteration, but I could have said something, something like that. Um, 
but that's not me. That didn't fit me. <laughs> and I wanted it to be bold and I wanted it to be something that people will remember. Um, and so, um, also stemming from thinking about women who choose to do sex work because they can make more money, but also because that money will help them raise their children. Um, that brings up the issues, uh, systemic issues where there's, they don't have access to food, they don't have access to good communities, clean environments, and that affects the quality of life that they can give their children. And so if they choose to do this work to give better life for their children, but they're being condemned for the type of work and not um, and just respectability politics, it's like what what what's uh, what's in place? What to how could this have prevented this person from choosing to do sex work because they didn't have access to all of these things to give their children a better life? Um, but also not condemning sex workers because that's what they choose to do because they want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I so part of the proceeds from the business um, are ten percent. And we're starting at 10%. I wanted to be able to to be more than that, um, but we're very, very small business right now. So 10% is what we can afford. Um, so we donate 10% of our proceeds to Sister Song, Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. Um, and they are a nonprofit organization, and they are based out of um, Georgia. I think it's Atlanta, but I know it's Georgia uh, for sure. And so their mission um, is to strengthen and amplify the collective voices of indigenous women and women of color to achieve reproductive justice by eradicating reproductive oppression and securing human rights. And so with reproductive justice, that does that entails more than just the right for an individual to make the best choice for themselves and their families when it comes to uh, reproduction, but it's also access to clean water, access to clean environments, safe neighborhoods, um, and access to food, health insurance, and medical care. And so without those things, you can't properly raise a family, um, and then you have to look towards other measures that aren't considered either safe or legal to do. Um, and so, yeah, like, all this came from um, from the chapter, and yeah. So we also um, try to hold safe spaces, um, specifically for uh, women with an X, spelled uh, with an X, W-O-M-X-N, um, which is a spelling of a woman that is explicitly um, inclusive of anyone who identifies as a woman, period. And so um, we do, well, COVID kind of messed up the one for this year, but we were supposed to have um, a giving back event where 100% of the proceeds were going to be donated, and it called the Vagin Art Exhibit 2020. Mm-hmm. And so we put out a call for artwork and artists to donate um, different pieces to the exhibit. And Trisha um, submitted a piece. Um, and we had, and this was supposed to be at the end of Women's Month, which was March, um, and then the first week of April. And so we had to reschedule that, and it will be October 12th through the 19th. But those details um, have not yet been solidified because we have to come up with you know, the restrictions are rules, so how many people can be in the gallery. Um, but I wanted to have visual representation um, of the female body, male body, and non-binary bodies um, and the reproductive system. Um, and everyone who contributed, their artwork speaks, like, it, it, it's to be interpreted. Um, so some of the artwork have, has descriptions and some don't, but it's also up for interpretation um and that's really what i wanted um and hopefully that will turn into a mobile exhibit so i can just be able to travel in the u.s and do like pop-up um exhibits and be able to donate that donate the money the proceeds from the art shows um to nonprofit organizations who um support reproductive justice and reproductive rights that's it. <laughs> that's 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 quite a lot. There's one more thing. It so, is. No, J- J- Jalen, there's one more thing. So if, so if someone was interested in in supporting your business, would they just do a search for my pussy, my prerogative? Um. So our so we we went through like a whole little revamp with our um name because we have like another baby business stemming from MPMP for children. 
um, which is called Baby Beauties, with cheese uh, with like self affirmations for children. Because a lot of the a lot of parents um, who are purchasing from MTMP were asking about um, apparel for their children, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> Uh, but I, I needed to have something quite, you know, more toned down. Um, so now our website is mpmp.llc. Great. And Thanks. then our in, our Instagram is also mpmp uh, period or dot llc. Okay. Jarlene, and that's how they can Great. Jarlene, you said a, uh, some things that really got me to thinking. Um, you talked about COVID and you talked about um, just... Um, how women especially, and I, and I would add a, a women of color more particularly, um, you know, are usually the ones who are struggling to make ends meet or usually the ones who are struggling with in some type of injustice, uh, whether mm-hmm. it be um, reproductive injustice or environmental or whatever. Um, and so I'm wondering, as because this podcast, this episode is about um, interventions, whether it be in the academy, entrepreneurial, or uh, activist on interventions, um, how might we think about the interventions that we've been talking about? We were talking about pedagogical here and with your business as well as art and, and Trisha's essay, also an intervention into how we even think about writing. When we think about the things that are happening today with COVID-19 affecting predominantly uh folks of color and also with the global black uprisings that are happening right now, um, how do we think about ourselves as interveners, uh, both in the academy, but also outside the academy with our businesses as well as our, our activists work? And and that could be for anyone um, who's in the episode today. I know that was a, a big question. I definitely struggle with that because I want to be a super saver and I know that I can't. Um, I don't have the means financially to do that. And I struggle because I would like to be on the front line, but I am unable to. Um, so I, that was something that I was really struggling with. Um, I think this was like in probably about like in May. Um, and we were like almost eight weeks into, um, COVID. Um, and I was struggling because I'm like, how, what can I do? <laughs> and so really, because I know that I'm not able to be there on the front lines, I'm not able to be out here protesting. And cause I work with children and I can't put myself in a position to catch the virus. And then I'm putting children and their families in jeopardy. Um, so I tried to, I, I, I tried to look up different organizations, um, who, are supporting people who are on the front lines. And so I donated to, well, not I, the business, MPMP donated to um, the bailout project. And 100% of those proceeds goes to uh, protesters and activists who, uh, protesters just, I just feel like this sounds so, is like a negative term or is becoming a negative term now. Um, but like activists who are on the front lines um, demanding justice and, you know, I donated to them, so 100% of the proceeds goes to um, bailing out um, activists and protesters who are um, sent to jail, who are arrested, um, which, yeah, I'm not going to get into that. Um, but that was one of the things um, that we were able to do, and I follow a lot of individuals who um, also follow like other people, um, and it's unfortunately there are a lot of trans men and there are a lot of trans women who are homeless and needing help at this time. So whenever I see a GoFundMe account that's trying to provide um, housing and shelter um, for different folks, I try to share those um, or I try to donate if I can. Okay. And for me right now, that is, I feel like really all that I can do. Um, and then also trying to share information um, to people who, who may not come by certain information about reproductive justice or injustices that uh, black women and women of color are facing right now um, in a book. I try to find ways to share that online uh, through different platforms like Facebook and Instagram because that's what people are on. And unfortunately, 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 that is where people are getting a lot of their information is on social media platforms. 
I'll weigh in and I'll say this is kind of taking the question at a different level, I think, but um, I think that a lot of things are uns- have been unsettled right now and that a lot of the things that have been unsettled and, and certain po- new possibilities have opened up, certain things that always were possibilities are now just the they they seem more possible because people's routines and people's normal ways of going about things have have been shaken up eventually they're going to resettle and the question is how do they resettle and i think i think whatever kind of space that we spaces that we have influence right now so for us as teachers i think this has to do with our classrooms and the way that education works but i also think that for um scholars and art well art art's always kind of out there pushing the boundaries but it, but, uh, but but i think that for for scholars and thought le- thought leaders i i i also think even just in your own kind of circles to continue to kind of see this as an important moment to make sure that when things settle whatever that means they don't settle back to the old way of seeing well this is how we do things and this is normal but that we seize on on new possibilities and new opportunities and, that's um, a very good point dr harrison not as good as yours but <laughs> <laughs> that's point. i'm just trying <laughs> i think i think that is very important to say that we don't want to fall like this needs to be an eye-opener and we're not going to fall back to the the ways pro uh pre-covid yeah mm-hmm. and we need to be um proactive instead of reactive and I, I think another thing it opened us to look at is how we we look at, you know, the idea of work ethic and productivity and expectations. And for me, I'm taking it from the realm of arts. And a lot of my work is in community engagement. But unfortunately, and I say, I say unfortunately, nobody else, somebody else might get mad that I said unfortunately. But community engagement is often looked at from the lens, from the dollar value lens. You know, how can we engage our community so that they can support our program, so that they could come to the show, so that they could buy tickets, so that they could subscribe? It's, you know, there's a very capitalist approach to community engagement, and I believe there should be more caring involved for the people involved in developing and contributing and building these organizations. And I think arts plays... Uh, a very strong role in that, especially arts institutions should play a role in caring for their community. And right now we're in a point where people need to be cared for. We've lost our usual social interactions. A lot of people have lost their livelihoods, have lost family members. There's so many things that we're losing in 2020. We cannot, like you said, Dr. Harrison, we cannot go back to the same old way. We have to find new ways of doing things. And we have to find ways that we care. Institutions, organizations, this is nonprofit, for-profit, care about the people, the people who work for you and the people who contribute that dollar, you know, for your profit margin. It has to go beyond just getting we have to figure out ways that we can give and we can ensure that the people around us are healthy and that our practices are sustainable for the people and the environment that we're in mm-hmm. oh yeah you're um, here you know um the person who i wrote the chapter in the book with kimberly williams and we she's not on this episode but she will be on an episode soon um she always tells me uh, we need to learn how to give each other more grace. And I think for me, that is something that I've struggled with, even though even even though I expose and I practice a, a caring pedagogy, is that I don't give myself enough grace. Um, and so what I've learned throughout COVID is that uh, in order for in order for us to make the interventions and to see the growth and the progress that we want, we also need to be kind to ourselves. And it took COVID for me to realize that <laughs> that uh, I need to do that. And I think that moving forward as as Black people, 
just not me talking about myself, but as black people, we also, as we are caring for each other and as we are giving and as we are making interventions, we also have to remember that we have a finite resource, <laughs> you know, like we have a finite amount of energy that we can expend at any one time. And so we also have to make sure that we give ourselves enough grace so that we can make these interventions going forward. You know, it's a beautiful way to end this conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in. To learn more about our podcast and stay up to date with us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at StandpointsPod and on Twitter at StandpointsPod1. Standpoints is produced in association with Virginia Tech Publishing. Our producer is Joe Fort, and our student researcher is Callan Leahy. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Kwame Harrison and Geraldine Morell. I'm Andrea Baldwin. And I'm Trisha Cadet. Join us next time as we continue our exploration of the Black experience. Oh,